The scripture reading today is from Judges 11, sections 1 to 6, 11, 29 to 37. Jephthah, the Gileadite, uh, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head uh, and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a, a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as abel Keremin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, please bless your servant Mark Wilson today as he delivers your message to us. Please give us minds to understand and hearts to feel which, what it is that you're trying to say to us and open our ears and our eyes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Are we good, Sean? Thank you, Carolyn. Carolyn's been struggling with a cold for a few weeks, so. <laughs> the 
pray you get better here. As I saw all these children coming up in front this morning, I was reminded of a dream I had. Dindy will tell you that I do have some very vivid dreams that I woke up with this morning. And I was actually in the service here at SPUC, and it was during our prayer time. And I was up to the front in prayer, and the, two, the people praying for me were two young girls who were leading us in prayer during the prayer time, and they were praying for me. And I, it was just so sweet, I mean, the dream that these g- girls were holding my hand and praying for me. And I thought, wow, that was just remarkable. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> Children are just as in touch with the Lord as we are. <laughs> More so, maybe. Well, some of you know that uh, Dindy and I recently uh, did a trip in Sweden and Norway. And some of that was prompted by a DNA test I took a couple of years ago. I don't know if any of you have ever taken one of these DNA tests that are on the market now, tracing your you know, genetic background. I mean, I knew that at least on one side of my family, I, my great-grandparents came from central Sweden. We still had relatives there. I'd met, met one of them. But here it was in my genetic test showing up 60% Scandinavian, and it identified the actual county in Sweden, Dalarnar County, where my DNA was from. So this kind of stirred a little bit of interest, you know, going back to my roots and finding family there and, and uh, doing that. And so we arranged this trip with my two sisters coming from Seattle. And our host in Sweden was uh, my cousin, whom we knew, who was quite a famous photographer and filmmaker in uh, Sweden. And of course, one of the joys of traveling is you learn and see new things. And we learned about the most famous painter of Sweden, someone by the name of Anders Zorn, who was from this area that I was from. And so we went to his museum dedicated to his art and life in Mura. And it turned out we were watching in the visitor center a video about his life that my cousin had actually made. And Zorn came from a very humble background. His peasant mother, we went up in the forest where my great-grandmother used to herd cows, and, and Zorn's mother did the same thing. But as the economy soured, she went to the big town of Uppsala and got a job in a brewery that had just opened up. Well, the owner of this brewery, Leonard Zorn, took advantage of this young peasant girl and had an illicit sexual relationship with her, and she became pregnant. And she came back to her home at Mora, gave birth to a young boy, and this young boy grew up to be Anders Zorn. And so even though the father claimed him as a son and later gave him a bit of inheritance, Zorn had no relationship with his father whatsoever. And he was raised by his grandparents on a farm there. And as a very early age he began to show his interest in art through various wood carvings that he did. And this area up there is known for the famous Dala horses. So we went to the factory there that produces these in all sizes and all colors, but these as souvenirs. So this is the famous Dala horse from Dalarna County. And as a result of Zorn's work, when he was 15 years old, he was allowed to enter the Royal Academy And over the next few years, struggling as students do, uh, with little support, he graduated and amazed his teachers with his artwork. And from this humble background as an illegitimate son, he grew to be Sweden's greatest painter. 
traveled to the United States, and for Americans, it's quite interesting, he paid, painted portraits of three of our presidents that you can see. One of them still hangs in the White House, uh, Taft, uh, Cleveland, and Teddy Roosevelt. So I'd never heard of Zorn before, but here he is, uh, this very important painter coming from my home area. Well, the background of Zorn, of course, is in a sense resembles that of our judge that we're discussing today, Jephthah, who likewise came from a quite disadvantaged background. Yet he too overcame these problems in his life to lead Israel to victory over her enemies and to lead the nation as well for a period of six years. But as we looked at this passage, we see that not only did he do this, but he also made a very controversial vow that has led to one of the biggest problems of interpretation for Jews and Christians ever since, okay? So this morning, we want to look at two things in this text. Number one, how God can use us despite our backgrounds, Jephthah's victory, and then how to interpret difficult biblical texts, Jephthah's vow. Now, Jackson has been taking us through the cycle of judges that uh, we've seen. He has charts charts showing us this cycle uh, in his PowerPoints. And we see the same cycle just before the introduction of Jephthah. Judges 10, verses 6 through 7, introduces the situation after the judge Yair dies. Quote, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the various Canaanite gods. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he, God, became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Okay, so this is the situation. So for 18 years now, the Israelites are oppressed by the Ammonites. And of course, what do they do? They cry out to the Lord in the midst of their oppression. We have sinned, they say. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And he, God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. So again, we're in this cycle that we've been seeing. And so chapter 10 ends now with a problem. The Ammonite army is camped at Gilead, while the Israelites are nearby at Mizpah. And both of these are east of the Jordan. So as we're thinking of Israel and Jordan today, these were the two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan River, which is today the modern country of Jordan. Okay, just to settle us here with our geography just a bit. So this is all taking place in the east side of the Jordan River. And so... The Israelites are wondering, what are we going to do? They don't have a leader at this time. And they ask the question, who is the man who will begin the fight against the Ammonites? And so the final first verse then that we see in chapter one that Carolyn just read to us introduces us to this Gileadite Gileadite named Jephthah, who is called a mighty warrior. But as we quickly see, he has baggage. That is personal problems, okay? Son of a prostitute, product of an illicit union with a man named Gilead. We're told that Gilead also sons by his legal wife. 
And as they grew up, they realized that Jephthah threatened their inheritance. And so they ganged up and kicked him out of the house. And Jephthah had to go and make do outside of his natural family. Other specifics of his situation we don't know. We're never told the name of his mother, what happens to the mother, what kind of a relationship he had with his father. Uh, it's silent there other than the general situation within the family and his rejection, especially by his half-brothers. However, we do know that Jephthah was forced to live then as an outcast, and he had a group of renegades that had gathered around him. Now, we think of another famous Israelite who also had a group like this, King David, okay, before he became king. 1 Samuel 22, 2 says, all those who were in trouble or in debt or discontented gathered around David. So Jephthah has a similar motley crew of you know, malcontents that uh, are gathered with him somewhere out in a place called Tob that nobody knows where actually ever was. So they're all living out there together. And Jephthah and his gang now, they're surviving by raiding into the various Ammonite and other camps, cities that were surrounding them. So as the leaders of Gilead are talking about, you know, who are we going to get to fight the Ammonites to, to lead us in the battle? Ah, we've, we've got this guy who actually knows how to fight. And he's got an army already with weapons, so let's invite him to see if possibly he will accept this invitation to lead us. And of course, Jephthah is no dummy here when he receives this invitation. He asks a very relevant question here. Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? You know, you're the very people that were involved in my rejection. So why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Okay, so a very legitimate question. So we see this outcast has some very good negotiating power. So we see Jephthah's a pretty good negotiator here. And he extracts a promise from the leaders of Gilead that he will be restored and then elevated to a leadership role if he can lead them to victory against the Ammonites. So they go to Mitzvah, and they seal the deal there, making uh, with the Lord as a witness, and Jephthah now is installed as the commander-in-chief of the armies of Gilead. As you see this, it's just a beautiful picture, isn't it, of how the Lord can reverse circumstances in one's life. From what is natural... Jephthah being rejected by his brothers, uh, his father based uh, on a, the son of a prostitute, and now he is the commander of Gilead and promised to be their leader if he brings victory. Truly, the last shall become first <laughs> in fulfillment of what Jesus says. Now, in the verses we didn't read here, and 12 through 28, 
they depict a very complicated negotiation. So Jephthah has a second negotiation here now with the king of the Ammonites. And I won't take time to read it, but simply summarize it. And he conducts this negotiation through messengers. Now, first of all, Jephthah and the king try to settle this dispute peaceably. But that doesn't happen. Jephthah asks the question, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? So that's his question to the king. And the king, who is unnamed here, answers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. So they're at this impasse here related to their demands. And we see that now Jephthah answers with a very detailed review in the next 13 verses of Israel's history that happened 300 years ago. So one of the things I've learned, and I'm sure you you have learned living in the Middle East, people have a very long memory. (laughs) From our part of the world, our memory only goes back a couple hundred years. Here it can be many centuries, even millennia going back about things that have happened, wrongs that have occurred. And so now they're taking back 300 years to what happened when Israel was led by Moses out of Egypt during the Exodus. And he begins to review that history and tell them that as they passed through the various tribes there, Israel was not looking for a fight. They were wanted safe passage, and they were not going to plunder these various nations. They were simply trying to get to the land that God had promised them. But he says that when they came close to the land of the Amorites, that king opposed them. And so out of necessity now, Israel had to fight. And they did. They conquered that land. And it's in this area now that these two and a half tribes were living on the east side of the Jordan River. But the king of the Ammonites is claiming that this has always been our land. And Jephthah makes the point, you've never had this land. You're trying to make a land grab now over the land that we had conquered during this time. And so Jephthah now refutes the argument of the king of the Ammonites, and he rejects uh, the narrative, and now the two sides will go to war over this issue. Now, it's quite remarkable when you read Jephthah's recounting of the history, somewhere along the line, he's learned this entire story whether it's from his mother, from his father, somewhere, he knows the history of his people Israel and the exodus that brought them out. And he's able then, with his knowledge of Scripture then, to refute the lies and the claims of the enemy, the king of the Ammonites. And we next see this wonderful statement, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Let me say that again. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, early in the book of Judges, we saw the same phrase being applied to both Othniel in chapter 3 and Gideon in 634. Dindy's going to be talking about Gideon in two weeks. So the Spirit came upon these judges to equip and empower them for the work that God had called them to do. And I think this is such a wonderful description about how God empowered his people then, 
He empowers his people today. Now, if you've done any study of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, you realize that there, in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit came on people only temporarily for specific acts of empowerment. But now, under the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit is not just with us, but he's in us, isn't he? He's leading and guiding us each and every day, but we still need that empowerment of the Holy Spirit that these judges had. It's the same Holy Spirit who empowered them, same Holy Spirit that empowers us. We talked a lot about this when we went through 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. But again, the emphasis here of the Spirit's empowerment that brought victory to Israel. So now with the Spirit's anointing, he mobilizes the troops in Gilead and Manasseh for battle, and we see the result stated in verses 32 and 33. The Lord gave them into his hands. He defeated 22 towns, and thus Israel subdued Ammon. The victory was given to Jephthah with his troops over their enemy. And we see again God's solution for Israel being repeated here that we've seen in the other texts that Jackson has been talking about. Israel's victory came only after they had repented of their sins, turned away from false gods, sought a leader of God's choosing, and allowed the Spirit to lead them into victory. That sounds like a good formula for us today, doesn't it? Still, repenting of our sins, turning away from those idols, false gods in our lives, seeking leadership of God's choosing, and allowing the Spirit to work in our lives. Praise God. Would that be characterize us as a people of God today? Now, the second part of this story comes to Jephthah's vow. So before going into battle, we see Jephthah making this vow, and I'll read again what uh, Carolyn just read. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, so he's anticipating that God was going to empower him to victory, will be the Lord's, that is, whatever comes out of the door, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, because this passage has so many questions of interpretation, we want to use it as a model this morning to approach similar difficult texts in the Bible. And we want to address two questions in this text this morning. And I must say, you're going to find two very starkly different interpretations of this text uh, by very competent interpreters in antiquity and today. So let's just talk our way through it here just a little bit. First of all, did Jephthah make a mistake by even making a vow before going into battle? So that's our first question. Does he make a mistake by, by, by making a vow? Well, but we see that other prominent figures in the Old Testament likewise made vows. We look, for example, at Jacob. He's the first in the Old Testament, one of the patriarchs, sons of Abraham. In Genesis 28, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, this is before he's going to the promised land from Padanaram or southeastern Turkey, he says, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. 
It should be the other way. He's leaving the promised land to go to get a wife in Paddan Aram, okay? So if he, God brings him back safely, he's going to make a vow, and he does that. Now, God didn't seem to have a problem at all with Jacob making a vow. For in chapter 31, he tells Jacob, I am the God of Bethel, where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So God has honored his vow, and Jacob then has uh, erected uh, something to give stone of remembrance. Another vow that we know that's quite uh, familiar is that of Hannah. Remember before the altar, or as she went up to Shiloh, she says, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give to the Lord, give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And so she's making a vow there before Eli that if the Lord will give her a son, he's going to dedicate this child to the Lord. And of course, that son is Samuel, probably the most famous judge of Israel. And we're told in Psalm 132 that David also made a vow. But Lord, remember David, he made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. So throughout the Old Testament, we see men and women of God making vows. So to answer our question, did he have to make a mistake by making a vow? We can answer no. So this is not the problem, uh, the making of a vow. So he's not censured. He's not rebuked in the text for making the vow. Now, we could maybe, you know, fault him that it's too vague. He says, whatever comes out. Or on the other hand, that maybe it was too specific, saying from the door of my house. So maybe if he had to frame the vow a bit differently, whatever animal comes out of my farmyard or something like that, the first animal, you know, that comes out there, he would have been spared himself and his daughter much grief. So again, how he framed his vow seems to be the problem. But we ask ourselves, what about making vows today? Do we as followers of Jesus, is this something still valid? I mean, we hear Christians trying to bargain with God a little bit. You know, if you'll do this for me, then I'm going to do that kind of thing. Well, Jesus speaks very specifically about this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, again, talking to Israel, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. So he's saying that people of God in the Old Testament did make vows. But he says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. Now, this is a problem that the Jews of his day were doing. They're making vows on these things whether the God's throne or Jerusalem, or I swear by God's throne, or I swear by Jerusalem, that somehow this was going to give them some sort of special favor with God by naming these things. And he says, do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. And he concludes in verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one or from evil. So this is what Jesus says about making vows now in the new covenant. And the reason why is we don't need to negotiate with God 
to do something for us by making a vow. He knows what we need before we even ask. We know he's a good God who wants to give good gifts to his children according to his will and purpose. Our job is to ask. His job is to answer in his own way and his timing, and we don't need to manipulate. I'm not saying that these people, well, that's what we're trying to manipulate, but sometimes making vows and promises are, have a motivation of trying to manipulate God. So that's not necessary now. The second question here is, what actually happened to Jephthah's daughter? Did he actually sacrifice her, as many commentators throughout history have suggested? <clears throat> so let's look at a couple points related to this. So as we've seen, Jephthah really knew Israel's history, and he knew God's commandments about sacrifice, especially human sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12 says they do all kinds of detestable things. That's the other nations that are surrounding Israel. The things that the Lord hates, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So Jephthah clearly knew the ban uh, that was against sacrifice for Israel as compared to the other nations around them. In the Greek text here of this verse, we see a masculine pronoun for the thing, whatever comes out. So a masculine pronoun indicating that Jephthah expected a male animal to come out of the door. Why? The law of burnt offering requires that the sacrificial animal must be a male, firstborn male without blemish. Leviticus 1, if the offering is a burnt offering, from the herd, you're to offer a male without defect. So his daughter would have been unacceptable by virtue of her sex as an acceptable offering to the Lord. Point three, three times her virginity is mentioned. Again, emphasizing her inability to marry and to have children through sexual relationships with a husband. So you read that three times, the emphasis is on virginity. And if you read the accounts of the judges both before and after here, we see the author is emphasizing, for example, Gideon had 70 sons. Yair had 30 sons. So there's an emphasis here on the offspring of the judges who are to carry their legacy forward. So we see now Jephthah failing to have offspring here is emphasized in contrast to the other judges. So he literally now has no heirs to carry his name forward. So his family will pass out of existence in Israel's history. So as I read the text here, keeping those points in mind, here's some reasons why I don't think Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. Number one, I think his daughter was instead dedicated at the sanctuary of Shiloh, just as Samuel had been dedicated there by his mother Hannah. We see, secondly, Judges never specifically states that Jephthah, quote, took his only daughter and offered her up at the sanctuary at Shiloh for a burnt offering. It's never stated here. So it only tersely records or succinctly records, he did to her as he had vowed. 
Number three, why would the daughters of Israel celebrate each year such an abominable act as human sacrifice? They wouldn't. They celebrated her obedience to her father and to the Lord through these annual commemorations as the daughters went up there. Another point, Jephthah continued to administer Israel for six years. If he'd had sacrificed his son, I can't imagine that Israel would want to have a person who had committed such an abominable act as human sacrifice to continue to judge over them. We hear later in Jeremiah the condemnation of the nations for burning their sons and daughters in the fire. There's a, another uh, text of a king who sacrifices firstborn son to win a battle. So we're talking about here that was so despicable, so dis- abominable that, that, that this uh, was recorded as, as such an anomaly, as such an a, a unusual event. And uh, we don't have this in the text. Another point in 1 Samuel chapter 12, as Samuel is looking back over the history of the judges that have liberated his nation before he came on the scene, and he mentions in 1 Samuel 12, 11, and the Lord sent Jephthah and delivered you from the enemies around you and you dwelt in security. So notice how Samuel favorably cites Jephthah as an illustration of a judge whom God used to deliver his people. If he had to sacrifice his daughter, I can't imagine that he's going to cite him favorably. Now, last but not least, we come to the New Testament. Into the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, and as the author there is citing all the heroes in Israel's history there, In verses 32 through 33, and he's talking about those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and cited along with Samuel and David is the judge Jephthah. And again, I cannot imagine that the author of Hebrews, including a judge, a man like this, as a hero of faith, if he in fact had sacrificed his daughter to the fire. So from the portrait that we see here in Judges chapter 11, we see Jephthah emerging as one of Israel's heroes. He's a product of an immoral union, an unfriendly home, yet he survived to become used by God to deliver Israel from her enemies. But we've seen in the midst of this deliverance, he made an unwise vow by failing to be specific about his intentions and hence lost his daughter and any ability to have offspring. As we think about this daughter, maybe God had other plans for her, like for Samuel, making her an example of a godly single person who dedicated herself to a chaste lifestyle in the service of the Lord. We can never know for sure. But it surely makes a nice and fitting conclusion to this most unusual story. 
So where are you in this story this morning? Can you identify with any elements? I don't know your backgrounds, your family life, your situation with parents, with brothers and sisters, siblings. Maybe you've had rejection in your life that have brought hurts and pains in the memories as you remember those times. But I think our passage this morning says that God can turn those things around. He can redeem those things. And he can use you in the work of the Lord to bring victory in whatever surroundings he's placed you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. Got a lot of challenges to understand this, but we see how you used an imperfect man, Lord, to advance your will and your purpose for the children, for the nation of Israel. Father, this morning, we pray over our own lives, Lord. We've all experienced hurts and rejections, challenges that the enemy has tried to hinder us from fulfilling God's plans and purposes in our lives. But Lord, as we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we thank you that he can bring victory to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.